How much would you sell your family for? I don't want to buy them, I'm just curious. I read about a man, no kidding, who tried to sell his family on eBay. Um, the starting bid he put, I guess it was sort of a compliment, at $5 million, and he posted the ad on a Thursday, and eBay uh, you know, pulled the ad because it's against their policy to sell human beings. And a spokesman for eBay said this. I thought his quote was interesting. He said, People have tried to sell themselves five or six times over the past four or five years. There have been attempts also to sell their nephew, uncle, wife, or whoever's in the doghouse at the time. They've even tried to sell their soul. You know, as they say, you choose your friends, not your family. And we've all had a nice reminder of that this past week as we've been around primarily family that probably we, we, we wouldn't be around if it wasn't for the holidays. Um, there's an element of truth in, uh, I guess there's a great benefit to having holidays because otherwise we wouldn't be forced, really, by culture to get together with folks that maybe we wouldn't otherwise choose to be with. Um, you know, when you look at the Bible, you think you're going to find uh, maybe something different. Surely in the Bible there has to be a model family. There has to be somewhere in the scriptures a place where we can look to say, you know, that's how family is done. And the reality is when you look at the scriptures, the only perfect family that was ever there was a young couple in the Garden of Eden, and they didn't last very long as, as a perfect family. And they had kids. One ended up killing another. And on down through the generations, Jacob and Esau quickly were, became bitter rivals. Uh, Rebecca and Leah became bitter rivals, Joseph and his brothers, and that's just Genesis. You look through the rest of the scriptures and you see that, you know, blood, as they say, runs thicker than water, but not always. There is an element of family that is very difficult to be with, to get along with, and you would think that Jesus would have an exception. I mean, wouldn't it be nice if when you went to have your Thanksgiving lunch, there was just one of you there who was perfect. That would kind of bring everybody up, you know. They kind of raised the bar a little bit. But even in Christ's family, that didn't happen. And so we're going to look today at an issue in Mark chapter 3. What can you do when those closest to you reject you? You might want to sell them on eBay, but if you don't choose to do that, what can you do from a godly perspective? Well, let's look and see what Jesus did. Mark chapter 3, we're going to start down in verse 20, with a scene where Jesus' family begins to criticize him and certainly doesn't appreciate him as the Messiah that he is. Mark chapter 3, starting in verse 20. And he came home, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying, he has lost his senses. So we read here that Jesus came home, literally. It says he came into the house. That he came home, we know he came to Capernaum, because that was his new adopted home after he left Nazareth. 
and that he came into the house, and, and the text, the original, is pretty specific, the house. So we know that that's Peter's house from reading earlier in the book of Mark. So we know that he is in Capernaum, we know he is in Peter's house, and we're told that there is a massive crowd that has gathered around, and they were so busy doing ministry, Jesus and his apostles, that they couldn't even eat. And we're told that Christ's own people, meaning his family, his literal family, heard about this, and they, they said, this is fantastic. Jesus's ministry is just exploding. Let's go and encourage him. No, that's not what they say. They say, he's nuts. He's lost it. In fact, the New International Version says he is out of his mind. They concluded that he has lost his senses, and their reaction is to go and take custody of him. The original word means, has the same idea of arresting someone. We just need to go do for Jesus what he won't do for himself, and we just need to go take him away. His own family. Well, while this is happening, this sort of sets the stage, and then the family's going to come back into this scene here in a little bit, uh, starting in verse 31. But in between, the initial, his family thinks he's lost his mind, and his family actually comes to take him away, we have this other scene that's very similar. If his family thinks that he's nuts, now, to make matters worse, his own spiritual leaders, as it were, think he's possessed. Look at verse 22. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul, and he casts out the demons by the ruler of demons. So the scribes clearly can't deny that Jesus is doing miracles. I mean, you can't deny a miracle when it happens right there in front of you. And so you've got to have an explanation for it. You can't deny that it's happening. So you, you have to answer, well, why is it happening? Why is this occurring? The, re the religious leaders basically say, the scribes basically say, well, the reason this is happening is because Jesus is possessed of Beelzebul, which is another name for the prince of demons or Satan. And so here you have this, this scene where his family believes that he's crazy, his leaders call him possessed. And so let's back up just for a second and think about our own lives. If those closest to Jesus misunderstood him, then we need to be very humble about our own opinions of what God is doing in our lives, because it's very possible that we are also going to misunderstand God's working in our lives. They didn't get it, and they were right there witnessing it. How much more are we, all these centuries removed, need to approach what God is doing in our lives in a way that's humble, in a way that realizes, you know what? Maybe I don't understand everything. So here's a lesson worth remembering in your life. <clears throat> Very simple. When the Lord doesn't act as you expect, choose to respond with faith and worship. Simple to say, easy to write, very tough assignment. When the Lord doesn't act as you expect, choose to respond with faith and worship. Because you see, this was the problem they had with Christ. To be honest, Jesus disappointed pretty much everybody that he met. 
Think about from early days, his parents. He really disappointed his parents when he stayed behind in Jerusalem, and they were halfway back up to Galilee and had to turn around and come back and get him. Disappointed his parents. He disappointed his forerunner, John the Baptist, who was pining away in a prison just east of the Dead Sea and sent to ask Jesus, are you really the expected one or should we expect somebody else? He disappointed John. Jesus wasn't doing what John thought he should be doing. Jesus disappointed his disciples when they wanted the kingdom of God to come right here, right now to squash Rome, and instead gentle Jesus is doing acts of mercy and healing people and feeding people. The Jewish leaders he disappointed because he didn't follow their traditions. We've seen already with him violating the Sabbath in their minds. And so, what is your reaction when the Lord doesn't act as you expect? Where our, our challenge is to respond with faith and worship. You know, Jesus compared these, these people to children. In fact, a, a great cross-reference you might jot down is Luke 7.32, where it says, Jesus said, quoting them, We played the flute, and you didn't dance for us. We sang a sad song, and you didn't weep. In other words, uh, Jesus, you're not dancing to our tune. We've got expectations of the expected one, and you're not meeting them. Jesus says they're acting like children because they're not getting what they want. I remember speaking to a lady one time about Christ, and she said that she refused to believe God because she couldn't understand him. And I in a flash of insight, I said, well, did you understand your husband when you married him? <laughs> and she, she said, well, no. She said, but I knew he loved me, and that's all that mattered. I said, you know, it's the same with God. It's the same with God. You're never going to be able to fully understand a God who is incomprehensible. Uh, some months ago, I guess it was about a year or so ago now, I was leaving early uh, in the morning and usually when I would leave for work, I would uh, leave and Kathy's still asleep because I would leave like really early. So the house is dark, everything's quiet. And the way that I leave the house is through the garage, which is right by our bedroom. In fact, the garage, the other side of our bedroom wall is the garage. So if you were to go through the wall, you'd be in the garage. Well, our dog, Carly, sleeps in the garage. And so, you know, no problem, but I went out there and... As soon as Carly saw me, she got up and leaned against the wall, and I don't know if, you, if you're familiar with how Labrador retrievers show their affection, but it involves the whole backside of their body just wiggles, and their tail is like a bullwhip, and it just started slamming against the bedroom wall. It would have been like me literally being in the bedroom and doing this, and my wife is trying to sleep. And so I get away from get away from the wall, and then I muttered these two words, "dumb dog." <laughs> and then, and then it hit me, you know, I'm not that different than this dog. <laughs> because when you think about my Labrador, if you understand from her perspective, you know she she can't tie a shoe. She can't write her name. Uh, she can't read a book. 
In fact, she can't even begin the concepts of these simple acts that you and I do every day without thinking. Why? Because God made her to be a dog. God made her to have a dog's brain. As dogs go, she does what dogs do just fine. But from, if I evaluate her from a human perspective, she fails. And I thought about that with, with reference to my relationship with God. What if the Lord evaluated us from his perspective? Dumb human. <laughs> dumb man. Dumb woman. Well, of course we are. We can't even begin to fathom the concepts that for us, like reading a book and tying our shoe is nothing. To a dog, they can't even comprehend it. Creating the universe with a word is nothing to God. But for us, we can't even comprehend it. And so all this circles back to that question that when the Lord doesn't act as you expect, choose faith and worship. The church father, Augustine, had spent years struggling to write a book on the Trinity. Um, I think most of us would struggle a lifetime to do that. But Augustine was really struggling, trying to figure out how to explain the Trinity in a book. And so he, one day as he was thinking about this, he was walking on the beach, and he saw a boy uh, doing something kind of curious. The boy had dug a hole, and he was going over to the ocean and dipping out of the ocean and pouring it into this hole. And Augustine walked up to him and said, what are you doing? And the boy said, I'm going to put that whole ocean in this hole. And Augustine said, that's impossible. And now I think the story kind of turns apocryphal, but this is, how I, this is how I heard it anyway. The boy said, and it's also impossible for you to write a book on the Trinity. <laughs> now, that, if, that, if that story is true, that kid had a, had a profound insight. Whether it's true or not, the illustration is fantastic. That here you have one of the greatest, if not the greatest, the, theological mind of the early church, the early church fathers, Augustine struggling to understand the Trinity and to put it into manageable terms. And you and I are wagging our tail like my Labrador um, in our concept of the greatness of God. The world is a lot bigger than my dog's brain, and it's also a lot bigger than ours. God's awesome wisdom begs us to trust him for those parts of life which we cannot understand, which is pretty much all of it. When the Lord doesn't act as you expect, choose faith and worship. Faith makes sense, I guess, because we can't understand him, so we have to trust. We have to trust him. But also worship. It's sort of counterintuitive, and you, you really got to have a relationship with the Lord for this to even make sense conceptually. And that is when there is something going on in your life that you cannot comprehend how the goodness of God is at all involved. React with worship. Why? Because you realize that you're dealing with a God who is beyond your comprehension. Who wants to worship a God that you can fully understand? I don't want to worship a God I can understand. There, what awe is there in a God that I can put in a box? But a God who is so amazingly broad in his understanding, so broad that in his goodness he's willing to allow something very painful in my life, he is worthy of worship.
He is worthy of worship. When the Lord doesn't act as you expect, respond with faith and worship. Isaiah 55, verse 8 and 9, the Lord says this, My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways and my thoughts than your thoughts. You know, if the Lord doesn't act as you expect, then either you have expectations that are false, or your expectations may be true, it's just not time yet. Either way, we're to respond with faith and worship. So Jesus is accused of being possessed. I don't know if you've realized this uh, in your life regarding somebody who disagrees with you or if you disagree with somebody else, but it's really easy to slap Satan on something that you don't understand, isn't it? You know, there's another, another denomination that worships different than we do. Well, that's just not of God. In fact, honestly, they're probably of the devil. Sometimes we'll say that out loud, you know, like with snake handlers and people like that. But honestly, in our hearts, we'll kind of come to that conclusion as well, that we've kind of got it all dialed in, that the Lord and us, we understand it. We understand each other. And the reality is we're all in process of coming to know the Lord. His family didn't get it. They thought he was crazy. The religious leaders didn't get it. They thought he was possessed. Look at Jesus' response in verse 23. He called them to himself and began speaking to them in parables. How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. If Satan has risen up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but he's finished. But no one can enter the strong man's house and plunder his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house. This event that we are reading here in the book of Mark is, I believe, the pivotal event in the ministry of Jesus. Because it is at this moment, not that Jesus didn't know it beforehand, we've sort of caught glimpses of it, but it's at this moment that we, the reader, are clued in to what Jesus already knows. And that is that the nation of Israel is going to reject Jesus. Particularly, they're going to reject his offer of the kingdom. Because remember, that's what Jesus has been doing all the way back from the beginning. At Mark chapter 1, as soon as Jesus appears on the scene, we're told that the gospel of Jesus Christ is presented from the very first verse, and when Jesus comes on the scene in verse, chapter 1, verse 14, it says, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled, the kingdom of God is at hand. That's chapter 1, verse 15, and he has not let up on that message. The kingdom of God is what Jesus is preaching, what Jesus is offering to Israel. We don't talk about the kingdom of God a lot in the church. And sometimes when we do, we sort of spiritualize it. You know, the kingdom of God is, is this untouchable, uh, you know, God oversight over all things. There's an element of truth that's, to the, that's that. The kingdom of God is the church. Well, there's an element of truth that's kind of wrong about that. And, and right, it's sort of 
confusing in the sense where you can't touch it. But what Jesus is, is preaching, what Jesus is offering is the literal, physical, visible kingdom of God on earth. It's what the book of Revelation describes as the millennium, that for 1,000 years, Jesus Christ will rule the world from, from Jerusalem as the son of David. This is what Jesus is offering, and every Jew who heard Jesus offer this knew exactly what he meant. The kingdom of God was the literal, physical kingdom of God. In fact, the disciples understood it so strongly that when Jesus began to pivot away from that emphasis and to begin to develop the church, the disciples didn't want to let go of it. They understood the kingdom was literal and physical because they also had the best seats in the house when it came to the kingdom of God. They were going to have the box seats and, uh, and rule right along with Jesus. So Jesus is accused of two things of being possessed by Satan and of having the power of Satan. And Jesus uses logic to basically uproot both of these false accusations. First of all, he says, Satan can't be doing what I'm doing because then he would be working against himself. Jesus uses logic to say, um, a house divided itself can't stand. Abraham Lincoln wasn't the first one that said that, by the way, it was Jesus. Jesus said, a house divided himself against itself will not stand. A kingdom divided can't stand. So Satan, divided against himself, is finished. And clearly Satan wasn't finished because he was busy with all these people being possessed. So Satan is very much active. He is not divided against himself. And so logic says Jesus is not uh, possessed by Satan. But verse 27, he gives another illustration of breaking into a strong man's house and plundering his property. You know, if the strong man is available, he's going to stop you. So first, you've got to bind him up. And so for Jesus to use this illustration, he's basically saying that he has entered the strong man's house and has bound him up and is plundering his property. The idea that Jesus has entered into the domain, as it were, of Satan, and he has taken control. Jesus is the one now who is in control, and at any moment he can tell a demon to, to leave, and the demon has to leave. Jesus is the one who's in charge. He is the one who has bound up the strong man, as it were, bound up Satan. But let's look at Jesus' next words, which are very, very significant regarding the kingdom of God. Verse 28, he says, "'Truly I say to you, all sins shall be forgiven the, son, the sons of men.'" And whatever blasphemies they utter, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. I'll tell you, this passage, often called the unpardonable sin, maybe there are some translations that actually translate it, the unpardonable sin, he will commit an unpardonable sin. But literally, the text just says you're guilty of an eternal sin, guilty of an eternal sin. What is this we'll call unpardonable sin? What is it? There's been all flavors of baloney on this. <laughs> just take your pick. Some people say whatever the unpardonable, we don't know what it is, but whatever it is, I've done it. You know, whatever it is, I, I've probably done it. Or some will, some will say, well, whatever it is, I haven't done it. Or those who want to actually define it kind of go for the safe answer, kind of drop back and punt, as it were, and say, well, 
you know, the blasphemy or the unpardonable sin is to not place your faith in Jesus. And I'm going to guess that that's probably what you've been taught uh, a lot of times. Good people differ, and that's okay. But I want to show you what I think the, the text is teaching, and it's none of the things that I've just mentioned. The text clearly is emphasizing, verse 30, that they made this statement because they were saying he has an unclean spirit. Now keep your finger here in Mark and turn back to Matthew chapter 12. Matthew 12. Look at verse 28. It's important that when you interpret Scripture, you use Scripture. Not simply common sense, but Scripture. What does this unpardonable sin mean? Matthew 12, 28 is the parallel account of this from Matthew's perspective. It starts this way. Jesus says, But if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can anyone enter the strong man's house and carry off his property unless he first binds the strong man, and then he will plunder his house? It's interesting, in uh, Revelation 20, Satan will be bound in the kingdom. So once again, just as Jesus is doing miracles to show what the kingdom will be like, in a sense he also binds Satan, showing what the kingdom will be like. Verse 30, he who is not with me is against me, and he who does not gather with me scatters. Therefore I say to you, any sin and blasphemy shall be forgiven people, but blasphemy against the Spirit shall not be forgiven. Whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man, it shall be forgiven him. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit, it shall not be forgiven him, either in this age or in the age to come. What? That sounds sort of confusing initially. How can I speak against Jesus, the Son of Man, and it'll be okay, but if I speak against the Holy Spirit, it's not okay? Well, the context is the answer. Back up in verse 28. Verse 28 is very key. Jesus said, if I cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Jesus doing miracles by the power of the Spirit validates his offer of the kingdom. Cast out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. The miracles show that Christ can deliver the kingdom that he's offering. And so to attribute blasphemy against the Spirit is, in context, calling Jesus' miracles that he's doing by the power of the Holy Spirit done by the power of Satan. Jesus is not going around offering the kingdom to us and doing miracles today. Therefore, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not something that you can commit today. To say that the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit is not to place your faith in Jesus, well, it's true that not placing your faith in Jesus is unpardonable in a sense, but if you don't place your faith in Jesus, every sin is unpardonable. The reality is that Jesus is saying, in big broad terms, he's offering the kingdom of God to this particular generation. This generation is saying, you're not doing miracles by the power of the Spirit, you're doing miracles by the power of Satan. Christ is ultimately saying, if you persist in that view, the kingdom of God that I am offering you, that offer, is going to be withdrawn. Let's keep going, and I, and I hope that 
that this makes more sense as we move along. It's not an easy concept. I, I grant, grant you that. But, but there has to be an answer that fits in the context and not just something that we grab out, out of our hat. That day in Capernaum, Jesus realizes the nation that he has come to offer the kingdom to is not going to accept him. And therefore, the offer of the kingdom is going to be postponed. How do we know that? Well, remember, Jesus, this passage or this section that we're looking at began with his family, and we're about to see his family again. And we're going to see a significant pivot in Jesus' emphasis, particularly in what he says about his family. So let's look. Verse 31. Then his mother and his brothers arrived, and standing outside, they sent word to him and called him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they said to him, Behold, your mother and your brothers are outside looking for you. Answering them, he said, Who are my mother and my brothers? Looking about those who were sitting around him, he said, Behold, my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. This is not a, a good Mother's Day message, is it? This is not, this is one of the few times, very few times, in fact, I don't know of another time, where Mary is, is in cahoots with the brothers that think Jesus is nuts. Hmm. She was there. She was there. That's hard. Jesus had, had failed the expectations even of his mom. And Jesus makes this statement that seems sort of hard until you back up and look at the context. Jesus says, who are my mother and my brothers? And he points to his disciples, to those around him, and he says, these are, this is my family. These are the ones who do the will of God, this is my family. Jesus knew full well why his mother and his brothers had arrived. We were told a little bit earlier that they came because they said, quote, he has lost his senses. Jesus knew that. So they pulled into Capernaum with the wagon and the guys in the white coats to take Jesus away. Jesus knew that. Jesus knew what they were thinking. But you know what? Jesus also knew that after the resurrection, every one of them would come back around. Jesus' brothers didn't believe in him prior to the resurrection. But after the resurrection, we're told in 1 Corinthians 15 that Jesus appeared to James, his brother, and James was converted. So, and the other brothers were converted, Jude as well. So, but at this time, they were struggling with Christ. They'd grown up with him. They were offended at who he was. They weren't following who he was. And they thought that he had lost his mind. Jesus wasn't disowning his family. He was making a, an example of them, that physical blood connection, whether it's my family or whether it's my nation, Israel. Just because you're family and just because you're, nation, you're my nation doesn't necessarily mean that we're going to go along together if you don't follow me. And so you see a shift in Jesus' message from preparing the nation for the kingdom to what we're going to see, particularly next week as we get into the parable of the soils, of Jesus preparing the disciples for the age of the church. 
We sort of get a hint at it in verse 23 when it says that he began speaking to them in parables. Mark mentions that, and then he just backs off of it. But in chapter 4, you dive headfirst into the parables, and you see Jesus' very clear transition from focusing on Israel to now realizing in light of their rejection, he's going to focus on the church and preparing the disciples for the church, for the age of the church. So let's get back to us, though. And let me ask you a question. Let's say your family doesn't appreciate who you are because of your faith in Christ. You know what? The same was true of Jesus. You're not alone. Take heart. Christ faced the exact same thing in his family, and he noted that, that you can have a closer kinship with your brothers and sisters here than you can even with your own family. And I think there's probably a lot of us in the room that can say amen to that. We realize that God has given us a close-knit relationship with each other that we don't have with our own blood kin. We wish we would, but we don't. You don't choose, uh, you choose your friends, you don't choose your family. You know, it's also true here. I didn't choose for Taylor to be in this class. But there he is. Can't do anything about it. Can't ask him to stop coming. The same is true, what's true of your family this past week at Thanksgiving when Uncle Bob showed up, that rude individual that you never really like to get along with. The same is true of the body of Christ and your family here. You can't do anything about it. And that's good because it sharpens you. It causes you to be a person of grace. So let me give you another lesson here. The text, by example, teaches us that we need to choose to follow God's will over others' expectations. To choose to follow God's will over others' expectations. Think about this. What would Jesus' ministry have accomplished if he had tried to live up to everybody's expectations? If, he, if the goal of his ministry was to meet everybody's expectations about what his ministry ought to be, what do you think his ministry would have accomplished? Would have been a lot of healing, that's for sure. Would have been a lot of people getting fed, and they all would have died and gone to hell. If his leaders, if he'd done what his leaders wanted, he would have been a legalistic hypocrite like them. If he did what his disciples wanted, he would have been nothing but a political ruler who squashed Rome's oppression. All of those are legitimate needs. But Christ, Christ didn't come to dust the deck chairs on the Titanic. He came to feed, he didn't just come to feed a hungry person who is headed to hell. But he came doing miracles, showing that the kingdom that he offered was indeed the kingdom that he could deliver. Like Christ, you're going to be rejected by a lot of people that are not as committed to him as you are. How are you going to handle that? You need to choose to follow God's will over others' expectations. But let me quickly add an M dash to that. Let me quickly add a parenthesis at the end of it. It's not just a matter of choosing to follow God's will over others' expectations, but also do it with grace. Because it's one thing to be right, and it's another thing to be a jerk and be right. You know? You know what I mean? 
Just because we may have an understanding of the truth doesn't mean that we can't be nice about it. Let people be offended by the truth, not by you. Let the gospel be offensive, not you. Remember, the outwork of the Spirit of God in your life is not just to dispel truth, but the outwork of the Spirit of God in your life is also love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. That's the Spirit of God in your life. It's not just truth. It's the Spirit, it's the fruit of the Spirit being evident in your life. In fact, it's the fruit of the Spirit that, that frames the truth in such a way that makes it acceptable. The world is not so much, the world is offended at the gospel, but you know what? The world could swallow the gospel a lot easier if we were a lot easier to get along with. You ask the media today what they think of Christianity, and they will say Christianity is a bunch of rules and people wagging their fingers saying, you shouldn't be doing this, you sinner. That is not what Christianity is. That's more representative of the Pharisees. It's terrible that the world would look at us and see us as Pharisees, when the reality is that we need to choose to follow God's will over others' expectations, yes, but we need to do it with grace. So let somebody be offended by the truth, not by you. In fact, they ought to say, you know what, I can't really buy what they're saying, but I just like being with them. And eventually, the Holy Spirit will lift the veil, God willing. So our two lessons, I hope that you'll remember them. When the Lord doesn't act as you expect, choose faith and worship. And second, choose to follow God's will over others' expectations, but do it with grace. Let's pray. Father, what a great example is my Labrador Retriever. We can all identify with that relative sense of our looking down at what seems like a dumb animal, but reality is she's just a dog. Father, we're the same way with you. You are so far above us, we are not capable of understanding much less are we capable or qualified of criticizing your work in the world and even your work in our lives. So help us respond with faith and worship. In fact, we just take a moment, Lord, and love you and worship you for the great God that you are, though, we'll, though we will be the first to say we can't begin to fathom your work in the world, why you allow what you allow the evil that seems to be so rampant that goes on right under your nose. But in the same breath, we will immediately come back and say, but God, we trust you. We understand you. Uh, we, we want to understand you. And we worship who you are. And then as the world looks at us, Father, help us to be gracious, not only to be those who are so filled with the Spirit that we understand the truth, but also filled with the Spirit, that the fruit of the Spirit is what people see. And we'll pray this and ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.